coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing podcast. What we're looking for when we go salmon fishing or steelhead fishing is we're looking for fish that are actively migrating and are relatively alert. And when fish are in the process of migrating, they they release hormones which increase their alertness levels, allow them to swim through waterfalls and rapids. That was Topher Brown taking us into salmon and steelhead fish physiology. Swing and fly, spay nation, and a deep dive into understanding fish behavior today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. Fly fishing is always in full swing at Drift Hook. Drift Hook Fly Fishing can outfit you with the perfect assortment of flies to prepare for your next adventure. They've got you covered, nymphs, dry flies, hoppers, streamers, Euro nymphs. It's all there, super clean kit, tons of resources online. That's Drifthook, D-R-I-F-T-H-O-O-K.com to get 15% off your first order and support a great small company and this podcast in one easy click. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Please support this podcast by clicking through our sponsors' websites. Every time you get a chance to check in with them and a chance to make a purchase, you support this podcast in one easy and convenient click. Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for swung fly techniques, two-handed casting, and anadromous fish. Find out why Waters West has built a cult-like following around their fly time materials and why they are the go-to resource for the OP and beyond. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash waterswest right now to check in with Ed and Kyle and get all geared up to get on the water. Topher Brown is here to take a deep dive into all things Atlantic salmon and steelhead today. Swinging flies, we get into it all. We're going to discover how Topher teaches fly casting and how it can help you. We talk about some of the great Atlantic salmon rivers and some that you can actually get to this year. And I got to say, don't you love those podcast episodes where you just feel like you can keep listening uh, on and on and on? That's pretty much what we got going today. So here we go. Topher Brown. How you doing, Topher? Hey, Dave. Good to hear from you. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for taking time today to dig into this. Um, your name is one of those names that's been popping up for quite a number of years, it seems like. And, you know, it's good to finally get you on here because you, you know, we're going to dig into Atlantic salmon and spay. You know, we've got a lot of questions always from folks out there on that. So, so we're going to dig into that and what you have going with your guiding and your books and everything that you've done, um, you know, currently and in the past. But before we get there, talk about how you first got into fly fishing, then we'll take it into your, uh, your books and everything. I got started, um, I think, like most other people, through spin fishing, just as a real little kid. And uh, I've always thought that fly fishing and fishing and hunting in general are something that you, uh, it's like a gene that you inherit. And uh, I got it from my grandfather. And he took me hunting and fishing as a small kid. And I really took to it and um, started fly fishing after a long spin fishing career with daredevil lures. I started fly fishing around age 15 with trout and in my mid-20s with salmon. And once I hooked my first salmon, I was probably about 27 years old. I concentrated just on that. And it's uh, it's kind of been a, uh, I've kind of been a one-trick pony ever since then, just pursuing Atlantic salmon. And uh, now, 30, 30 plus years later, I'm 
still doing the same thing. That's right. That's right. And Atlantic salmon is one of those species that, you know, I think is is on everybody's bucket list, it seems like, right? Because it's uh, it seems like it's one of those ones that, you know, it's not everywhere, right? And that's part of the challenge. That's I, right. I would like to talk about that today, like where where they are, where maybe some easy places you can head to go, maybe where are the, where are the best places. But like, talk about that a little bit, you know, as far as, you know, if somebody's thinking like, hey, I want to really get an Atlantic salmon, you know, and this could be anywhere in the world. What do you tell somebody if they ask you that? The first thing I, I find out is um, what their budget is. <laughs> that is, uh, it's kind of like steelhead in the sense that um, if you have a big budget, you know, you can go stay at a lodge on the Balclear River. And that is a great way to to start fishing with some professional guys, but it's expensive. And so if you're starting out in steelhead fishing and, you know, you've got one rod and you're just getting into it, there is public water fishing in steelhead fishing. Olympic Peninsula, um, the Skagit when it's open, or you can fish some of the great rivers in BC, the class one waters. And there's not an exactly analogous situation on the East Coast, but there is a fair amount of fishing, which is reasonably priced. And so Quebec has, I think, probably the best system out there. And they have a pay to play, you buy a pass every day, or you can buy a week-long pass, and that gives you access to a specific river and oftentimes um, specific pools on a certain river. And that can be anywhere from $70 to $100 a day, uh, depending on the exchange rate. And that would be very similar to buying a Class 1 license for a British Columbia River. And in Nova Scotia, the rivers are very similar to buying a trout license. So if you buy the salmon license, it gives you the, um, the right to fish on any river in Nova Scotia for the entire season at a cost of something like $125. I think that is probably the single best deal in Atlantic salmon fishing. And the Marguerite is, uh, the most well-known of the rivers there. It's on Cape Breton Island. And, they have a good summer run and a good fall run. And uh, like a lot of cold water fisheries, there's kind of a slow period in late July and August, and then it picks up again in September and October. And that is a very, very popular fall fishery, uh, probably one of the two most popular fisheries. And then there's the lodge experience, and you can spend a lot of money doing that. Um I would say the average high-end lodge in Canada is is probably right around $1,000 a day, um, and in some cases more than that. And so very different experience than a DIY trip. And Where would that be too, Topher? Yeah, I'd go to Quebec. Um, you know, there's some great lodges on the Gaspé Peninsula. And although prime time is really hard to come by, uh, prime time on the gas bay would be the month of June and early July. And the other place that I would take a strong look at is um, Labrador. And Labrador, Newfoundland being all the same province, but Labrador being mainland. And most of the lodges there are reasonably priced in sort of the probably six to seven thousand dollar range 
Canadian, but that also generally includes um, the flight into the lodges. And because it's a remote fishery and it's all fly-in, much like Alaska, there's very little competition from other fishermen. And also you, um, you have some of the most pristine runs of salmon in North America. And you can also go to the, uh, you know, to Europe. I, I think probably the best destination in the world is now closed, um, and that is Russia. And the Kola Peninsula is uh, perhaps the most famous uh, of the Russian fisheries. And I think you can technically get in there, but I don't think any of the lodges are operating with the uh, the war in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia at the moment. And uh, Norway is another um, destination. Um, I fished there three times. And I would have to say Norway is um, probably, Norway and Quebec are my two favorite places to fish. And Norway is very similar to um, British Columbia in terms of scenery. Uh, large mountains, fjords, tumbling waterfalls coming down to salmon rivers, and big brawling salmon that, um, you know, the last time I was over there, I watched a guy lose 400 yards of backing all in one run. Oh, wow. That was pretty exciting. And that's what you go there for. And it's, it's not a numbers fishery, but if you uh, if you're on a big fish river, there's always the potential for a forty pound Atlantic salmon, and I think that's what keeps people going back. And it's not um, an easy easy fishery to figure out. So that would be the only only thing I would probably do a lodge over there to get started. And um, and if you do the DIY thing, it's some of the most difficult fishing that I've done for salmon in the sense that um, they don't really use boats and you should be pretty handy with spay casting and a 15 foot rod to, uh, to cover the water and very challenging fishery, but a very, very rewarding place. And I don't know, I, I would describe fishing in Norway as um, casting and you feel like you're an extra in the, uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the Tolkien's, uh, you, you expect an, you know, elvish people to come out of the woods at any moment and, uh, just an incredibly gorgeous place and highly recommended. Yeah. I love that. Love that. No, this is great. This is a great start. I think that, you know, I wanted to talk about some places and you gave us a good little summary of, you know, some lower price stuff, you know, from like Nova Scotia out to, yep. you know, Russia, Norway, and you mentioned Labrador. I mean, it seems like that one maybe is if you wanted to put one together and had some money to spend, you know, that might be a good place to do it because, you know, it's not going to cost you $14,000. You know, it's more a little more reasonable, right, on the price. Is there a lodge? Is there like a name? Are there a bunch of lodges or is there one you'd recommend out there? There's a bunch of lodges. Um, I think, um, you know, what's happening with climate change, and I think it's happening with Steelhead on the West Coast too, is, you know, things are they're either shifting farther northwards or the runs are getting a little bit earlier or running a bit later. And uh, so the same thing is happening on the East Coast. And so if you're going to get into some of the better lodges, a lot of times you got to start in August and then work your way back into the prime slots. And 
for that, I like to be as far north as I can be. And uh, because in August, that means your your odds of running into a heat wave are pretty, pretty small. And uh, so Flowers River Lodge, which is, I think, the northernmost scheduled salmon river in Labrador, is um, is highly recommended. Um, I think it's just flowersriverlodge.com. And Hawk River, also a really fine lodge, um, which um, is in southern Labrador. And so you would get to most of the lodges in Labrador by flying to Goose Bay, uh, which is an old Air Force base. And then you would take a float plane, generally, a, you know, a de Havilland Beaver right out of there. And it's got a real Alaska Alaska feel to it. And in many respects, uh, uh, Labrador is, I would say, less traveled than a lot of Alaska. So it's a very, very wild place. And, uh, and I think one of the most important things, if you're going to get into any kind of fishing that's new to you, is to get to a place where you can, there's enough fish so you can make a mistake or two, and you don't have to go four days before you hook another one. And, and you can definitely do that in Labrador. So, you know, you need a certain hookup ratio just so that you get the hang of, um, you know, this is the wet fly swing podcast, just so you get the the hang (laughs) of hooking a fish on a wet fly swing, which is a little different than say nymphing or dry fly fishing. You know, you want to be, uh, pretty relaxed on the wet fly swing on salmon and steelhead and just kind of let them do most of the work for you. So, you know, having enough numbers of fish, you know, so that you're getting two or three to four hookups a day really uh, shortens that, uh, that learning curve. What, and this is great. I love all this stuff. So, and do you have, it sounds like you got some experience, you know, Atlantic salmon and steelhead. Do you find, are you doing kind of an equal amount of that this, you know, time or, or what's that look like? Um, I have, um, I've done enough steelhead fishing to be, uh, dangerously uninformed. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, uh, I've fished BC and I've fished the Skeena and I've fished the, uh, the copper and, um. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to get to the question for me was like, you know, again, like, I think you even said it, right. The difference between steelhead and Atlantic salmon, right. Yeah. Those, a lot of people maybe have, have caught steelhead, but maybe they haven't caught Atlantic salmon. So sure. Is, because numbers, right, is that you have steelhead numbers declining in some of these areas around the Pacific Rim, right? You see that going on. I yeah. think they're coming up a little bit, but I mean, Atlantic salmon too, you hear the history there, right? Where numbers, I mean, which yep. one is, which one is the harder one to catch these days? Uh, that's a good question. I think, um, boy, if you're in the United States and you want to fish in the United States, you want to go steelhead fishing. And, uh, because, There is no Atlantic salmon fishing and it's all closed. Um, I live here in Maine. We do have a few six or seven rivers that have Atlantic salmon in them, but they're closed to fishing. And uh, so you really have to go to Canada to catch Atlantic salmon. And whereas there's still good steelhead fishing in Washington, Oregon, and Northern California. And but once you get up, you know, into the northern reaches um, of the Atlantic Salmon Territory, they're they're in pretty good shape. You know, they're certainly threatened, but there's plenty of rivers there that are, you know, from say the 
North, well, I would say from the Gaspe Peninsula all the way up to Angaba Bay in um, northern Quebec, which is just below Baffin Island. All of those rivers are meeting their escapement and then some. So they're, they're in pretty good shape. But if you head south in the, uh, um, in the range, they're, uh, you know, they, they, uh, their numbers deteriorate fairly quickly. And so, you know, 20 years ago, I said you'd probably have to get on a float plane to have really consistent Atlantic salmon fishing. And we're kind of headed in that direction right now. Right, right, right. So, so there are some still some, uh, yeah, it's not like you're going to go out there and, and hook 10 Atlantic salmon on a trip nope. necessarily. You're going to, yeah, it's kind of like steelhead fishing, right? I mean, you're going to get it for is. the most part, you know. If you get an opportunity, right, that's great. You know, maybe a couple opportunities, that's awesome. But it's not, it's not going to be a numbers game, which is, I mean, I think most people into steelhead Atlantic salmon, you know what I mean? Like people are okay with that. That's the cool thing. It's not about a numbers thing for most people, I think, right? What do you totally. think? Do you feel like, have you gone through this numbers thing in, in your career? Did you go through a thing where you're like, uh-huh. okay, you know, I'm going to catch as many as possible. And now you're like, okay, I'm old, right? It's all, it's all good now. I've caught enough. Yeah, I'm pretty much, that's exactly where I'm at. Um, the, uh, the best week of fishing I ever had, um, I hooked 45. Oh, wow. And that's a lot for Atlantic salmon. So really good week. Wow. Where was that? Uh, that was in Labrador actually. And, uh, I did land all of them, but, um, you know, I had them on the line and, um, probably landed, I don't know, low thirties, something like that. And, um, and that was uh, 25 years ago, but you can still, you know, you can still hook a lot of fish in Labrador to this day. But my point is that I don't really remember fish number seven from fish number 23 from fish number um, 17. And um, so I think where I'm at now is um, I want to hook memorable fish that i call them rest home fish they're they're fish that i'm going to remember in the rest home when um i can't go fishing because i'm too old and um so i'm looking for uh fish that'll kick my ass basically and i want a i am willing to fish for one or two fish over two weeks in the hopes that I can hook one or two fish that will, as I said, kick my ass. And uh, so those are generally big fish, early season, high water. And um, and that is where I go for that is uh, the gas bay, early season, uh, late May and early June. And that's when a lot of the largest fish are coming in. And they... Um, they use that high water as a uh, as a corridor to get to um, the summer holding pools. It's just simply easier for them to run in high water than low water, and so and they're coming in. It seems earlier and earlier and earlier, even in the middle of May now. And these are the biggest fish of the season. They're, I would say, they probably average around. 24 pounds right in there that's an average fish in that time period and uh but they're not easy to come by the way i put it is they're um they're easy to hook and really hard to find yeah easy to hook easy to hook yeah i mean they you know they are aggressive they're just coming in from the ocean 
and you know they probably had their their last meal just a few days ago and um but there's not many of them in the river and the river might be 900 feet across so where the heck are they oh wow and um where are they whereas if you um if you fish that same river in late July and the river is running at 25% of that volume and there's only a few good places for the fish to hold. They'll go and hold in those pools and, uh, and they'll be easy to find. But because somebody probably fished for them yesterday and some of them have been hooked and, or some of them are just, um, you know, they've really shut down in order to conserve energy. They are easy to find, but really hard to hook. So it's just the opposite. And, um, so you can kind of pick your, your poison. Um, I would recommend, uh, if you can, you know, the latter scenario, cause at least you're over fish. And, uh, if you're in a summer holding pool where they're going to be for, in many cases, weeks at a time, uh, they're easy to find. And you know that every cast, um, uh, whether you're fishing a dry fly or a wet fly or whatever you're doing there, you know, you're over fish. Whereas in the early season, you know, most of your casts, you're not over fish. And uh, so it's very similar to the difference in steelhead fishing of, say, winter steelhead fishing versus summer steelhead fishing. In winter steelhead fishing, you spend a lot of time searching. And you're just trying to find a, you know, the biggest steelhead of the year. Uh, but they're migrating and the river is large after, you know, the winter runoff. They're hard to find, but relatively easy to hook versus summer steelhead fishing where they might have settled down into a, into a holding pool and might have been there for a week, two, maybe longer, but they start to get harder to hook because they've seen a few flies, maybe, maybe been pricked by a hook and, uh, you know, and you got to change your tactics accordingly. And so I tend to find that people that um, are hardcore steelhead fishermen that um, have hooked a few fish, they really tend to get juiced up over winter steelhead fishing. And because uh, they know that there's not going to be a lot of them, but they're going to they're going to be big and they're probably going to kick your ass. <laughs> and part of the challenge there is, you know, with the steelhead is that, you know, you have you know, temperatures, right? So winter steelhead, the water is typically colder. So you're, there's techniques are totally different using the Skagit stuff and down That's dirty right. versus like summers where you're getting them, you know, on the surface, skating dry. So, I mean, there's this whole thing of summer, winter, but so I do see the, the overlap there. It's pretty interesting, right? And it's all, it, is. it seems like it's all water related is also, you know, let's let talk about that. Is it temperature or is it water for those earlier returning fish? And then, and then talk about, get into a little bit like how you would find Atlantic salmon if you're new to a, a river? Sure. Um, it's definitely temperature related, but it has more to do with water levels than, uh, than temperature. Um, it plays a role. And uh, in other words, you know, we don't run into in late May, early June, we don't run into water in the thirties like you might in a winter steelhead situation. And our typical temperatures are going to be high forties somewhere in there. So that's a good, that's a good temperature for fish activity. And so the, 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 uh, the hurdle that we run into is just, 
you know, that's runoff and the water can be dirty. It can be high and, and it is essentially at its largest volume during the fishing season that you'll encounter. So where the heck are they? You know, where do you go? And if these fish are moving, then, you know, where do you go to intercept them? And the um, summertime, obviously very different. Temperature becomes um, an issue later in the season. If it gets too warm, they really shut down. And in many cases, the river managers may close the fishing. And uh, so you don't want to fish in the, you know, what we call the dog days of August. You want to be there if you want to fish dry flies, floating lines, and wet flies, you probably want to be there in late June and July. And in Labrador, July is prime time, being farther north in the, um, in the range. And that's a straight floating line fishery. No sink tips, no nothing uh, to get down. And they fish dry flies and hitched flies, and that's about it. And bad news for the wet fly podcast, you'll probably hook more fish on a hitched fly than you will on a wet fly in Labrador. They're very, very surface oriented right. up there. That's interesting because I want to talk about that, the dries. And that is the cool thing about the podcast here is that, you know, when we started this, you know, I told the story before, but we started it, you know, over whatever, five years ago, we were kind of all focused on steelhead. You know, after those first 30 episodes, we've gone into everything. So we still have the name, but we've got as many probably uh, top, uh, episodes on trout or Euronific as we do uh, wet fly, right? But, yeah. but it is still cool because I love the tradition. Yeah. Uh, it always reminds me again of like the tradition, right? And I don't know, to you, do you find the tradition in Atlantic salmon? That's a big part. Like people are really into that, the history, thinking back to Scotland and all that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. I think they really are. Um if you get onto the chat forums, you know, whether, you know, it be uh, the spay pages or the salmon fishing forum, um, there's a lot of discussion about older tackle, older techniques, and some disagreement on what uh, somebody might have meant by grease line fishing and, you know, lively discussions, shall we say. Let's hit that one, Topher. Talk about that, the grease line. I think that's something very interesting because there was a book back in the day, right, Grease Line Fishing by, you probably know the author, yep. um, like that that small, right? So that book, I remember I had that book on my, um, on my like as a young kid, right? I remember like, because I was steelhead fishing, but again, that was great techniques for summer steelhead, you know, things to learn. First of all, do you know that book? Who is the author? And then what is Grease Line Fishing? The, uh, the book was written by um, Donald Rudd and uh, who was a British author, and it was written about the techniques of uh, Arthur Wood, who was the, the first angler to promote floating line fishing for Atlantic salmon. And he did so on the, uh, the Carrington beat of the River Dee in the 1930s. And it was fairly revolutionary at the time, because uh, a lot of people thought that the fishing season was over by the month of May. And a lot of people also thought that you had to put a fly right on the nose of a fish in order to get them to take. And he disproved all that. I think he landed something like 4,000 fish in his lifetime, and all from that one, one beat, as far as I know, a beat just being a section of the river. And um, and, and he, um, I think where people get confused about what he's doing is 
you know, there's some terminology, which is a little confusing. Um, and I think some of the terms that they used in the 1920s and the 1930s in Scotland are a little bit different than, than our understanding of those terms, most, mostly centered around what is drag or what is drag free. And, um, and if you look at, you know, some of the articles that Wood wrote, he, um, he was definitely swinging a wet fly with a floating fly line and he was mending his line upstream. If he cast at a high angle, so in other words, directly across current, he was mending upstream to slow that fly and kind of hold it in front of fish. But if the fly got downstream of him, it would start to lose speed. So he was mending downstream in order to keep it swinging. And some of this was specific to the water that he was fishing and uh, the limitations of the water that he was fishing. And, but a lot of uh, particularly steelhead fishermen have taken him to mean that he was dead drifting a wet fly and uh, which is almost like nymphing and that is definitely not the case and uh, he um, was definitely swinging a fly and and he wrote a a pretty good article and it was it was in eric taverner's book called salmon fishing and uh, and you can see from the line drawings that he's quite clearly swinging a wet fly and uh, he's just managing the speed of the fly by mending, which again, you know, we're talking 1920, 1930, this is no big news for us, but back in the day, that was revolutionary. And uh, nobody was nobody was doing it quite like that. And so certainly for summer steelhead fishermen and for summer Atlantic salmon fishermen, uh, probably the most important, you know, figure in the sport uh, because he, he um, he said, "Look, you know, we uh, we don't have to dredge in order to catch fish, and we can get our line. And there were there was no such thing as a floating fly line. You you took the same line that you were fishing down and dirty, and you greased it with mutton fat or seraline in order to get it to float. And that's how basic the tackle was in the day." What were they using? What was the down and dirty? Those guys before Arthur was doing the the surface, you know, greasing it. What were they doing before? What was the technique like for Atlantic salmon before it? They were oiling their line to give it, um, you know, so that it would sink. And then they were uh, using heavier flies in order to get it down, shorter leaders, much of, you know, very similar to what we were, what we would do today. And a lot of times they would cast at a fairly shallow angle, so 45 degrees downstream or even below that. And they might take three or four steps after they cast to give it time to sink before um, it came tight and then would swing. And they were looking for a very slow, nice, deep swing. Like winter steelhead fishing. Just like winter steelhead fishing. And... uh, so they were using all those same tricks that we would use today, only we've got a, you know, a vast array of sinking tips and T10, T12, T14 at our disposal. And uh, I would say, you know, winter steelhead fishing, probably more complicated in terms of getting your depth and your swing right than summer steelhead fishing. 
but nothing beats the uh, you know the pleasure of a of a floating line in you know in midsummer and uh, and active surface oriented fish that are going to come up and and play on the surface. So we we have Arthur Wood to thank for that. That's amazing. That's a perfect uh, summary. I and I, I've read that book many times. It's it's a cool little book, and it just yeah had so many great uh, tips there. Let's talk about. We mentioned books a couple of times. Give us a heads up on your books before, so we don't forget that because I know we're not going to get into everything today, and I want to give people uh, point them in the right direction. So what have you done on your books here? Um, I wrote a book for um, Wild River Press called Atlantic Salmon Magic. Uh, it is a it's a pretty good sized book. It's about four hundred and seventy pages on Atlantic salmon. And it's, um, I think it's the biggest book ever written on Atlantic salmon and in terms of page number. And, uh, it took, um, second place in the national book awards. And so it did very, very, very well on the, I don't think they actually read books in the national book awards. I think they just, uh, they, uh, you know, they look at the cover and go, yeah, that looks pretty good. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I don't think they actually read anything I had to say in there, but, um, you know, we had some great photographers. So the production value, you know, is very, very high. And, um, and I think that is for a coffee table book, you know, you can either flip through the pages and look at a lot of pretty, pretty photos. Um, but you can also take a deep dive into the, uh, uh, the game and, uh, hopefully be informed and, uh, pick up something you didn't know. And I also spent a lot of time in that book, um, taking a look at, um, the biology of the fish and specifically, uh, what, you know, the relationship of the biology of the fish is to them taking a fly. And, uh, all of us fishermen, we want to catch more fish, right? So, um, you know, when are they more likely to take a fly? And, uh, and there's some very specific biological reasons for that. And, uh, and those apply to steelhead as well. And it's an interesting subject, you know, just to, to, uh, to bring it into focus in a, in a relatively short way, what we're looking for when we go salmon fishing or steelhead fishing is we're looking for uh, fish that are actively migrating and are relatively alert. And when fish are in the process of migrating, they, they release hormones, which increase their alertness levels, allow them to swim through waterfalls and rapids and allow them to respirate at a higher rate. And, but once they get to a place where they're going to hold for a long period of time, they no longer need that kind of um, alertness level. So they will actually shut down their, um, a lot of their, their basic um, faculties and achieve a state where they're only looking out for predators and not burning too much fat, which for an anadromous fish is, uh, is key. So in other words, if they were jacked up on hormones for the entire time that they were in fresh water, they would burn themselves up much like you or I would burn ourselves up if we couldn't turn our adrenaline off after being chased by a bear through the woods. We get a burst of adrenaline, helps us run faster, 
But once hope we hopefully survive the bear attack, we go back to where we were before. So um, the specific hormone is called thyroxine. And when scientists have done blood samples on fish that are actively migrating, they're getting high levels of thyroxine in the blood serum. When they take fish that have been sitting in a hatchery for weeks and months on end, they get very low levels. So the way I describe the biology is you're essentially, whether you're, if you're steelhead fisherman or a salmon fisherman, you're essentially looking for salmon or steelhead that are jacked up on thyroxine because that's when they're alert and aggressive, inquisitive, and, uh, or they are territorial. And so if something like your fly gets into their immediate territory, it becomes very similar to, I describe it as the, uh, the close talker at a cocktail party, that person who gets right in your face and it's just too close. You take a step back, you know, and there is that element too, to presenting a fly to a fish. If you can present it within that zone, a lot of times they'll, they'll, eat it just to get it out of their face, which is, you know, not always a great way to fish. Um, and, um, so that's what I mean by the biology. We know exactly what is going on from a scientific perspective. And so how do you translate that to steelhead fishing and salmon fishing? Well, what are the most you know favorable conditions for migration? Well, they're typically when the water levels are good. So what does that mean? Well, if you got low water and you get some rain and the river comes up and then it starts to fall, that's when steelhead and salmon migrate. That's when you want to go fishing. That's when they're going to be most alert. And um, from a biological perspective, they're going to have the highest levels of thyroxine in their bloodstream. And, um, so I, I think salmon and fishermen and steelhead fishermen know this intuitively that good water levels equal good fishing. And you don't want to be there when the water's too high or too low. You want to be there somewhere in the middle. So if you got any kind of flexibility in your fishing, the number one thing for steelhead and for salmon fishing that I would say would be to have access to the internet and some sort of a gauge on the river. So if you know from a USGS um, gauge on the river or um, an Environment Canada gauge on the river, if you're in Canada, what that river is doing, is it coming up? Is it coming down? Um, we are so dialed in on some rivers where we know that if it's 0.7 on the gauge and falling, the fishing is going to be lights out just going to be really, really good. Bear Vault is one way to assure your next backcountry trip stays memorable, epic, and safe. Bear Vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. This in turn keeps your food safe, keeps the bears safe, and keeps you safe. I've got a classic story that I told. I've told a few times about the bear taking my backpack while up in Alaska. I had my lunch and some snacks in there and just went up around the corner to fish for a bit. When I got back, it was uh, totally gone. If I would have had that bear vault right at that moment, I would have been okay because my food would have been completely sealed. The bear would have had no idea and no reason to take my backpack. So a good reminder there. 
You might not realize it, but this type of thing happens all the time, even to experienced outdoorsmen. The great news for us is now we can experience the great stuff of a remote trip without ever having to worry about animals fiddling with our stuff. Sleep soundly knowing your vault has sealed the deal for you. Believe it or not, food storage is a key consideration while backcountry hiking, fishing, or camping. The Bear Vault also has some great bonus features like the see-through sidewalls so you can find your stuff really easy and a large opening plus it doubles as a nice camp stool. This thing is legit. It definitely is one of my, this might be my favorite feature is, is the camp stool. You know, I love a good, a good chair out there. Check in with the crew at Bear Vault at wetflyswing.com slash bear vault. That's bear vault, B-E-A-R-V-A-U-L-T. Okay, back to the show. So I think that makes sense. You you know, just summarizing, yeah, you, you want a fish that's migrating, so you want to get those, you know, you don't want it low stagnant water. You don't want it raging either, right? So you want it to come up, and then it starts to drop, right? And those fish are moving the perfect conditions, and they can see, obviously, um, and then that's kind of what you're looking for and they're, and they're excited. So if you, if you got a fish migrating and they're in a pool, they're more likely to hit it just because like you said, out of aggression or they got those, those hormones going. That's right. And, uh, you know, why did they take a fly? Um, I don't think it's a particularly, uh, complicated question. You know, they take things in their mouth all the time and, uh, they didn't swim out to the ocean at, call it four inches long, four and a half inches long, and return as a 15-pound steelhead or a 15-pound Atlantic salmon. They, they didn't put that kind of weight on by being shy about what they were eating. Um, they ate everything that came across their path. And so if they're fairly active and and they haven't shut down all their systems like a hibernating bear, um, they take flies very well. Uh, but those periods of, um, you know, good fishing, if you will, they can be pretty concentrated and, um, tough to time. And, uh, and even during, a, a day, you know, you may have a, a window where it gets really good. It might be a falling barometer, um, if you're fishing in the middle of summer, it, it might be the first two hours of the day because that's where the water temperatures are perfect. Um, but if you show up, you know, during the day, it gets too warm and they shut down. And then even by evening, it's still too warm. So, you know, um, it really changes throughout the season. The, the converse is true uh, early season or late season. It may be too cold in the morning. Your best fishing is... Uh, from 11 to two in the middle of the day because it just warms up enough for them to, to become active. So you got flows and water temperature. That's right. Yeah, you got everything, right? You got, like you said, you got the biology, you got flows, water temperature, you know, and the more you get that doubt in, the better it is. Um, you know, I'm curious, you mentioned flies a little bit. It's always interesting to talk flies because, you know, it's kind of the joke, like flies don't really matter probably that much. Do you think with Atlantic salmon, like maybe talk about the flies you'd be using and and as you get into that, talk about, you know, how you on your home water would catch an Atlantic salmon, kind of like gear, fly line, stuff like that. You bet. Um, I think the, um, I think the flies do matter to a certain extent and the, the size is, is fairly critical. And, uh, so if you're fishing early season and the river's 900 feet across and there's not a lot of fish in the river, 
you generally want a pretty big fly and uh, so that they can see it. And if you don't put it right over them, hopefully they're aggressive enough where they might swim 10 feet to either side of where they're holding in order to take a look at it. But if it's too small, they just won't see it. Um, I think the color makes a difference, but it depends on what the water's doing. So for example, if the water's dirty, um, I think you want something you know, big and black so that it, it, it contrasts. You might throw some orange in there. Orange shows up well in dirty water, at least for salmon. And, uh, and then as the water drops and becomes clear, you generally want to start to shrink the size of the flies, go smaller and make flies that blend in a little bit better. And, uh, and the reason for that, I think, is, you know, as, as we march down a, a pool, uh, if the water is really clear, you know, they, uh, they can see that fly from a pretty good distance. And so by the time it kind of gets into taking range, I, um, I call it my BB King theory. Um, the thrill is gone. And <laughs> uh, in other words, they saw it 10 casts ago. They saw your fly just fine. And now by the time you get down to them, the thrill is gone. And so one of the reasons that, you know, you fish a, a, a really muted and blending, you know, fly that blends in with the colors of the river is so that it kind of sneaks into their territory and you still retain that, um, that element of surprise where the fish is forced to react to it um, and doesn't have a tremendous amount of time to, to consider it. Right. What would be a small fly versus a big fly, like size, length? And, and then what is the type? Is this like a traditional style? Yep. Um, I fish big two flies in the early season. And um, so flies that are four to five inches long. So no messing around. Usually a little bit of weight in them where legal. And, um, but by the time the, you know, the, the river starts to fine down, um, I would say my average size is a is a probably a six to an eight right in there, and uh, and that's a wet fly hook, um, either a single or a double. Again, depending on the regulations, and my favorite pattern uh, would be certainly for Quebec a fly called uh, a Picasse P I C A S S E, which is a French Canadian fly. And uh, it's a beautiful kind of spay looking fly that when you tie it and it gets wet, it's got this beautiful teardrop uh, shape to it. It could be an emerging caddis if it's small enough, or it could be a small bait fish. And then it's got some colors that really blend in really nicely with uh, the colors of the rivers there. Now it's got a yellow underwing and a black overwing. And uh, so it fits in very nicely with that idea of trying to, um, to fish flies that blend in, um, with the surroundings when the water is very clear. And, and then, uh, the other thing that I think is interesting about summertime fishing, and this, this really, uh, contrasts with steelhead fishing is that when you're on a, a floating line or what a steelheader would call a dry line, um, we tend to fish a really fast wet fly swing. So 
it's typical for us, uh, and that's because salmon like a fast swing. They like a fast-moving fly. And so I typically cast at 80 degrees. So 90 is directly across current. Zero is directly downstream. I typically cast at 80 degrees with a floating line and a smaller wet fly, and I mend downstream right after it lands. And so I'm looking for a, a big downstream belly in the uh, floating fly line to grab the current at the surface and really whip that fly around. And that's a hard concept to impress. I've, I've fished with on a lot of steelheaders and uh, just, I think the biggest transition for a lot of steelheaders is uh, upstream mending, getting rid of that upstream mend and, uh, and getting them to bring their angle up almost like you're fishing the sink tip. And, um, but that I call it auto mending where you just automatically throw an upstream mend in there. Um, for summer steelhead fishing, you'll catch fewer fish if you do that. And, um, and they, they just like to play. And, uh, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the cat in your living room. If you move the, uh, the catnip or the fake mouse too slowly, they're not interested. But if you, if you, if you really pull it quickly across the living room floor, even though they just had their nine lives for dinner and have a full stomach, they'll pounce on it. And, uh, and that's a pretty good analogy for a lot of what we do because salmon and steelhead are not typically feeding in, in a river, but they're still apex predators. And, uh, you know, it's almost like watching a nature channel. If you, if you got a cheetah and they're not hunting, but something runs in front of them that maybe looks injured, they're probably going to chase it down. And, uh, just to investigate the nature of the opportunity. And uh, salmon and steelhead are, this, are very, very similar. They're, they're predators, and uh, you're trying to flip that switch to get them to be a predator. And, uh, and a lot of times they'll play. What are your, like, as far as, yeah, I mean, I know you get some questions out there. What would be some questions you get typically from people coming in you know, maybe they're fishing Atlantic salmon their first time or in, I mean, are you still doing uh, plenty of guiding? Is that still keeping you going? That would be a couple of questions for you there, but yeah. Uh, no guiding anymore. I do a lot of, uh, a lot of spay casting instruction and, uh, um, Rick Kustich and I, Rick is a well-known steelheader from the Great Lakes region. And he and I, and a couple of other instructors are doing, uh, a big uh, gathering on the Salmon River this summer in August um, called Spay Nation, and which is being done in conjunction with Swing the Fly, uh, which is a magazine out of Missoula, Missoula Montana. And it's, a, it's an online magazine. And uh, so we've got a number of instructors, a number of um, uh, paid classes and a number of free presentations. Uh, that'll be August 11 through 13 on the Salmon River in Pulaski, New York. And with a real focus on, on uh, Great Lakes steelheading, but also some on salmon. And then I do a lot of private instruction uh, for spay casting. 
And uh, I used to guide and had a work permit to guide in Canada, but that was 20 years ago. And um, so I haven't done that in, in quite a while. And, and then in terms of my own fishing, I'm generally, I generally fish a good solid six weeks a year for salmon. And, you know, my life's just kind of based around that six weeks of the year. I, uh, you know, I've taken uh, some relationship hits and some income hits in order to go spend that amount of time on a, uh, on a salmon river, but, uh, I can't help myself. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. So you still have the, uh, you know, the addiction that hasn't slowed down at all from like your, you know, like just have every year you're, you're jacked to go hit the salmon fishing. Totally. And, uh, like I'll, I'll be heading up in, uh, oh, about four weeks, um, to see if I can get my ass kicked. And uh, I'm going to do some early season fishing with a friend of mine who used to guide on the Sustat River in uh, BC. He's Canadian. And, uh, uh, you know, we just, uh, you know, go pound around in high water looking for, uh, you know, those early migrating fish. And uh, we land about half of them. You know, I had two fish last year that just about, cleaned me um and i'm fishing big gear i i fish a 15 foot 10 weight sometimes a 15 foot 11 weight and i carry 350 yards of 60 pound backing and you know the problem is you just if you're waiting you can't follow these fish as fast as they're leaving the pool and uh so they get they get way down river we don't fish with a boat so Oh yeah. What is that like? So talking about the gear, you got the gear, you got the 15 foot. I mean, it's the big gear I want to talk about, but also the big fish and the big water. I mean, it seems like that's one of the big differences that steelhead. Sure. You've got, you know, steelhead to get up to 20 pounds, 30 pounds, even some 40, but I mean, Atlantic salmon are just a bigger fish in general. I mean, what is the average Atlantic salmon you're catching? Do you think during a good season? Uh, during a good season, I'd say, you know, they're, they probably average 12 to 14 pounds, something like that through the whole season. And, um, uh, the early season fish are, I would say 22 to 40 pounds right in that class range there. And, uh, so your average fish is probably low to mid twenties and with, you know, quite a few fish if you fish long and hard enough um over 30 and you know an occasional fish at 40 or maybe slightly over 40 and you know that there's a few big fish rivers you know much like there is in uh steelhead fishing the kispiox is known for some big steelhead uh the grand cascopedia the restigouche are known for big atlantic salmon and there are fish over 40 landed on those rivers, those two rivers specifically, every year. And the, the Matapedia River, which is a tributary of the Restigouche, there was a fish, um, there's a uh, salmon counting station way high up on, the, uh, on a tributary of the Matapedia. And they had a fish in there that they pulled out of the counting station, and it weighed 61 pounds. And it had a fly in its mouth. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And so they nice. pulled the fly out and they actually 
found out who the angler was who had hooked it. And oh, that's cool. Gave him his fly back. And uh, how did they figure that out from the fly? That's some good researching they they did there. Yeah, good research. I mean, they uh, they asked up and down the river, and uh, and he was a local. He lived on the river. And uh, oh, wow, that's cool. And uh, you know, went to the there's a fly shop on the river. Went to the fly shop. You know, they just kind of went Sherlock Holmes on the case. And uh, not that many people. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned Rick Custich. Yep. Just want to make a note. We've had uh, we had him on the podcast a while back. We're going to have him on. I think he's got another book coming out as well. So we're gonna we're gonna check in with him. I, I always love the great. We got a good connection out in the Great Lakes as well. So it's a um, pretty amazing spot, right? And you're not far from there. Do you find yourself um, spending more time up north of where you live, or do you head down to the Great Lakes quite a bit? I head down there quite a bit actually, and um, I first fished there. 35 years ago. And then I had about a 30 year hiatus until COVID came along and I couldn't get into Canada because the border was closed. And so I ended up going to the Salmon River to get my wet fly swing fix and really enjoyed it. So um, I try and go back once or, you know, twice every year. And I'm pretty addicted to the you know, November fishing, which is when a lot of the the lake run steelhead come in and they are little silver bullets and they are super active. They pull hard and, you know, they're super jacked up on, uh, on energy. And, um, I actually now prefer that to, uh, a lot of fall Atlantic salmon fishing because a lot of the fish that you fish for in the fall, for Atlantic salmon have been sitting in the river all summer long and they're starting to get colored up and pretty dark. And I'd rather catch a, um, a lake. Catch a bright steel, fish. Catch a bright fish. We've got the program and, uh, you probably know Jeff Liske, but we do a steelhead East school out in, uh, out of Lake Erie, uh, on the South shore and uh, cool. yeah, kind of steelhead alley. Right. And it's yeah. been amazing. You know, we did it the first year, last year, we're doing it again this year. And it's just, yeah, they're all, they're chromers. I mean, there's like 1.6 million steelhead, right, that are released in that area. So there's just a ton of fish. But yeah, it's an amazing, like for those that don't know it, I always, and I, that's why I love hearing Swing the Flies heading out, you know, there too, because I think that, you know, it's, it, we're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to, you know, like it's, it doesn't really matter whether you're Great Lakes, West Coast, you know, Canada, it seems like we're all in the same game. Do you find that, that there's, you know, sometimes you hear the old school people like, oh, it's not a, it's not a steelhead, right? Like, like, it seems like that's going away a little bit. I think that's going away a little bit. And, uh, I mean, a fish is a fish and, uh, you know, and the fish don't know anything about these sort of, uh, distinctions. And, uh, and I can tell you during COVID when I couldn't go fishing, you know, where I normally go, um, I wasn't thinking about that. I was like, well, holy smokes, I'm into a fish. And, uh, so I think they're a great game fish, whether they're coming out of the lake or the, uh, or the salt water. And I don't really care. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I think I run into about the Great Lakes is a lot of people assume, you know, that the bad stories that they heard, you know, from 30 years ago about the Great Lakes with, you know, snagging Chinook salmon and stuff like that. You know, that fishery is that fishery has changed a lot. Not only has snagging been illegal for a, a long time, but when I went over there on my first trip, there were like seven dudes walking up and down the Salmon River 
with bamboo fly rods and hardy perfect reels. And I was like, oh, wow. I was like, oh my goodness, has this place changed? <laughs> and, uh, and you know, it's, there are more swingers, if you will, over there among fly fishermen than, you know, dead drift nymphers. And so it's really changed. And, you know, and that's one of the reasons for Spay Nation. Jeff Liske is coming to Spay Nation. He'll be there. And, uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a, um, the idea is um, to kind of have a, uh, a get together for like-minded people and, um, and to exchange information and um, to uh, hopefully get some new folks into the sport and to get them enthused about learning about spay casting. And so we'll, you know, we're going to cover uh, Skagit techniques, floating line techniques, long line techniques um for those that just like to cast um the longer heads and um and there'll be fly tying um as well demonstrations and uh so hopefully um you know it'll be kind of become a yearly thing and um i think what zach williams would like to do um is kind of roll it out on the uh the west coast as well and uh there used to be uh, the Sandy River Clave, which was a big event, but that hasn't been held in, in a while. And uh, there used to be one in, uh, I think it was Carnation, Washington. And uh, so, you know, there's an opportunity to do those kinds of things. And, um, you know, in the fishing game, folks love to see, you know, a, a gathering of 150 fishermen who are interested in conservation and are interested in the resource and, um, and are going to buy fishing licenses. And, uh, so it's, uh, you know, we did it last year in a small way and now we're kind of ramping it up in a, in a much bigger way this year. And, uh, so um, it should be uh, it should be a good event. Sounds like an amazing event. I'm I'm excited. I would like to get out there as well. So we'll see. I'll check in with Jeff on it. Um, let's. Uh, I'm. You know. I mentioned this a, a bit ago. I know you get a lot of questions. Let's dig into a few questions for folks. Like if they're coming in here, maybe they've wanted to do some Atlantic salmon fishing. Maybe they have a trip coming up. What would be some typical questions you get? That could be around Atlantic salmon, spay, that sort of thing. Do you have a, a list of a few questions that are really common that you hear about a lot? You bet. Um, I think the biggest question is, you know, what should I get for gear? Um, you know, should I get a 15 foot rod? Should I get a, an 11 foot switch rod? You know, what, what do I need? Yeah, that's such a good question. And, um, and I would say, uh, you probably need a couple of rods and you really don't for most fishing need a 15 footer that is, uh, you know, been, replaced i think as sort of the 30-06 of uh two-handed rods is probably a 13 foot eight weight now um and maybe a 14 foot eight nine you know not like a super stiff 14 footer but something with some bend to it and so if you're going to buy one rod i'd probably get a 14 footer and uh but if you're fishing medium-sized river, that 13-foot rod, much like it, it is for steelhead, is a real sweet spot and uh, in about an 8-weight. And a 9-foot 8-weight for summertime Atlantic salmon fishing is, is still probably the most used rod because you can fish a wet fly with it. 
but you can also fish dry flies with it. And because it's shorter, uh, you can be quite accurate with a dry fly. And in uh, certainly on the gas bay, you know, we're generally, if you're fishing in July and August with a dry fly, you can generally see them. So you're not fishing blind, you're casting to individual fish and with a dead drift bomber um, and a nine foot eight weight is just simply more accurate than a, you know, 13 or 14 foot rod and more delicate too. And so those two rods, I mean, if you've got a striper rod, a bonefish rod and a 13 foot rod, you're good to go and uh, you can fish anywhere. And then you should start out with a floating line. And, uh, but the single most useful is probably um, a floating line and an interchangeable tip line. And a lot of times these interchangeable tip lines, their shooting heads and the last 15 foot is 15 feet is interchangeable with a floating, an intermediate, a type three, a type six. So you can usually buy one of those lines and they come with a floating tip. So you got your floating covered and then you got all these other densities. If you run into high water or cold water or you need to get your fly down. Would this be like a Scandi line? Maybe you're going to say it, but would this be kind of like a Scandi type line for yeah, Atlantic salmon? Yes. And uh, so any kind of... Uh, um, like a Rio Versa tip is a good line. I use a Gale Force multi-tip, Gale Force being a company out of Scotland and, uh, super easy to cast. And then, you know, they're, they're Scandi lines, but you can still Skagit cast with them if you want to. And, uh, you don't have to have a Skagit line to go make a Skagit cast and you can still as long as your line's not too heavy and you have a skagit line, you can you can still make a uh, single spay or a snake roll. And uh, it's just that, you know, for fly size, if you're going to chuck really big, heavy flies, the skagit lines are perfect for that. But for salmon fishing, you know, a lot of times our summer salmon flies are, are small. And uh, so we're fishing, uh, you know sixes eights and tens in the summertime and you just don't need a uh a skagit line to drive that size of fly so scandi line's perfect and uh and but if you want to use your c spay snap t double spay with a scandi line uh it's no problem they'll they'll definitely do that so you don't you have do to be too. you can do that too yeah okay what are a few more questions if we stick on the top questions thing? So gear is obviously a big one. What are, uh, you know, you got a few other ones that you answer a lot. Yeah. I think the biggest one is, you know, how do I set the hook on a wet fly? Oh, right. And, uh, so if that flies, if that fly is coming across, you know, what do I do? And, uh, I think the best answer is, um, you really don't want to do very much. And, um, if you think about it, you know, on a wet fly swing, let's say the fish takes it at, 45 degrees downstream of you, um, his mouth is facing you. And so if you're too quick on it, you run the risk of ripping that fly right out of the fish's mouth. And so the ideal scenario is the fish comes up, grabs the fly, and then turns to go back to his lie, his kind of, a, you know, his home area. And as he turns and swims away from you, he sets the hook himself. 
And uh, that's kind of the ideal scenario. Sometimes they just come up and they grab it and they go, what the heck did I just eat? That doesn't, you know, this isn't good. So they might still be, you know, nosed upstream or even facing you. And uh, so you got a, kind of a decision to make. Do I set the hook? You know, what do I do? And I just tell people, as soon as you feel the weight of the fish, slowly raise your rod. And uh, so if you feel the weight of the fish that's turned in the first scenario and is now swimming away from, from you, you got them. Um, you're almost certainly going to land that fish. For the fish that comes up, grabs the fly, and pauses, and is like, what the heck did I just eat? Um, you want them to at least close their mouth on it. And if you can feel some weight there, it's inside the mouth for sure. And But don't come up on them too quick because you could still potentially rip it out of their mouth. So the old uh, dry fly nymphing setup uh, or um, set, if you will, not real good training for the wet fly swing. And uh, uh, you want to be... Uh, pretty slow and easy going on them. I kind of, uh, you know, I don't want somebody jacked up on espresso. I'd rather have them, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, after a couple of big old bong hits and <laughs> there you uh, go. super mellow. There you go. <laughs> and, uh, cause they're going to, you know, the double bong hit dude is definitely going to, gonna land more fish oh wow so so this is good so we're into this so the so the bog hit the guy taking the bog hits is definitely gonna catch more fish than the guy that's uh, jacked up on espresso totally yeah what about the guy that's jacked up on, on espresso and takes a bong hit is he <laughs> <laughs> uh i don't know i i've got some you know some casting clients and uh you know they they come up from like new york city and uh they're on new york city time and uh, I would really like, you know, f to be able to give them two Valium to get them to slow down. Right. They're jacked. Like, they're just going. They're just going. And, uh, you know, and the same thing applies. You know, I mean, I'm sure you talk to a, you know, a, a steelhead guide. You know, if he gets somebody from San Fran or Seattle and they're competing in traffic um, so that they don't get crushed and... They get out to the Olympic Peninsula, you know, it takes them two or three days to just kind of calm down and get onto it river does. time and just kind of let things happen. And that's true of your casting. It's also true of setting the hook. And uh, you just kind of let it happen. And if you force it, try it too hard um, and try and control the situation, um, then bad things can happen. So yeah, you want to be mellow out there for sure. You really do. And, uh, watch Jeff Liske cast, man. The guy is smooth and mellow and, uh, it's just all kind of one easy, you know. I love that you say that. Uh, Jeff has been such a cool guy, a person to get to know because he's very humble. You know what I mean? Like he yeah. talks about everybody else and all these great people and all these great, and he, you know, he never says anything about himself, but yeah, he, he is a, he's a superstar, you know, for, as far as I'm concerned. And then it's hard for me because I'm not a superstar, right? I'm not like an ultra expert spay person, right? I just do a good enough job to catch fish, but so it's hard for me to judge sometimes like, okay, who are the best, the best? I mean, how do you see that? When you look out there, are there, oh, yeah. you know, you must've 
catfish with many great casting anglers. What, how do you, what's the difference between the person that like is the superstar casting, you know, and probably like Zach and some of these other guys versus just the, your average good fisherman that may, you know, is there a big difference there in the, either the catching or, or in the, what it looks like? There's definitely a difference. And, um, you know, the guys who are really the best at it, like Zach and, uh, the best in the country is Travis Johnson out of uh, Maupin, Oregon. Oh yeah. And uh, Travis, Travis on Sunday, Travis won Spayorama at Golden Gate. Oh, he did. Yep. And uh, which is, he just won it, and uh, I think it's like his third time winning it, something like that. And uh, Travis, a full-time steelhead guide out of uh, Maupin, and I think he guides a lot of winter steelhead out of Sandy. And, um, but you know, he's, he's the best spay caster in North America. And so, you know, if you're looking at straight casting, there's a lot of people that get out there and say, yeah, I cast 140 feet. And, um, but I find that the best spay casters like Travis don't talk that way, you know? And, uh, I know Steve Rajev pretty well. And, uh, you know, Steve's the best single-handed caster in the history of casting. And Steve doesn't talk that way. You know, he's, he's like, yeah, it was a, you know, it was a good long cast, you know, and then the fish ate. And, uh, Steve doesn't go, yeah, it was 130 feet. And, uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody else could have made that cast, uh, but I did. And right. Fish. And, uh, right. so I find that the best casters are usually the most humble. There you go. Because... They realize that in the grand scheme of thing, things, being able to throw plastic-covered string a long way is really not all that important. And uh, it's fun. We're not saving babies. The, the quote that's come up by one of our guests in the past, he was like, hey, you know, we're not saving babies. At the end no. of the day, we're, we're fishing. Like, it's not, yeah, we're fishing. You can't get too jacked up on what we're doing. That's totally right. You know, it's not a cure for cancer. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's none of those things. And, uh, but it is fun. And, um, and it keeps us out of trouble. You know, I know a lot of people that would be, I don't know, you know, a lot of really good fishermen are pretty obsessive. And I don't know, they'd, they'd be hanging out at a bar if they didn't have fishing. Oh, I guarantee I guarantee the fishing thing, you know, it's like anything. It's almost like, you know, I think of my kids, you know, it's like, okay, I got to just make sure they're active. You know, I don't care what it is, right, but they got to be doing something because I know, you know, that's the thing. If you're not into something, it's easy to get into trouble and get off track. That's why fishing, I think, for a lot of us just keeps us focused and keeps us on track, right? Totally. I think that's, I think it's, I think that is its greatest gift. And uh, back when I was guiding, I had a guy that, um, got caught in traffic on 9-11. His office was in Tower 1. And uh, he got caught in traffic, so he was about 40 minutes late. And by the time he got to the office, the building was collapsed, and his entire office was killed. And, um, and he survived. And he told me that story when we were fishing, and, uh, you know, what do you say? There, there's really nothing that you can say. You just listen. And, um, and the thought that came across my mind that, you know, when I fished with him was, um, boy, the best thing I can do for this guy today is get him into a fish 
So that at least while he's got that fish on, he's probably not going to think about that. And that is, in many respects, what is so great about fishing is that no matter what you're, you know, you're going through a divorce, um, you're going to AA, you have, you know, you hate your job, you go hook a salmon, you go hook a steelhead. Um, I guarantee you, you're probably not going to be thinking about all those problems while you got that fish on the line. And, and that is, um, that's a great vacation. That's a great gift. And, uh, so even if you're not ever going to be the, you know, wind spayorama like Travis Johnson, you know, you may just love spay casting. And so when you go practice before you go on your fishing trip, you're really into it and you're having a really good time. And, um, and so even though you're not technically fishing, you're still fishing in your mind. And if you're tying flies in January, you're still fishing in June, you're getting your flies ready for June fishing. So it's, it's just kind of the, uh, the sport that keeps on giving the, the deeper you dive into it, the more it gives back to you. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's not a cure for cancer. You're not saving babies, but, um, I think it's, uh, it's saved a lot of people, um, who, as you said, might be in trouble otherwise without it. So I totally agree. I, I think that, you know, I think this has been great to, I think I, I've got a, you know, a bunch more questions. I think we're going to have to get you back on Topher here because, um, you know, there's a lot of great topics here. Let's dig into the, take us out of here. Um, I've got a kind of a, a couple of questions for you that are kind of some random, some not so random. Um, but the one is I, I saw, was there a Forbes interview out there of you? Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, it wasn't an inter- interview. I think they just was just kind of like a short story or a short article. Yeah. How did, how did that come to be? How do you find yourself on Forbes? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the guy who wrote it, um, I, I didn't know him very well at the time, but I fished with him on the Marguerite. He's a well-known author. He was at that time, um, on staff with Forbes, but you know, then he wrote, um, the author is, uh, Marty Burke who wrote a book called, uh, Lords of the fly. And, uh, which is all about the sort of the inner workings of, uh, the tarpon fishery in the eighties and nineties when it was really, uh, you know, the hunt for the 200 pound tarpon was really, really on with Billy Pate and Stu Apt and even Andy Mill. And, um, so I went fishing with him and, um, you know, and he, uh, interviewed me, you know, and then he wrote an article based on the interview. So it wasn't a straight interview and got into Forbes and, um, but I never even read it. So, um, I can't, I can't really comment on it. Yeah. And, uh, but he's a very good guy. He'd be a great guy to get on this, on this podcast. Oh and, yeah. Okay. Uh, good, good. Yeah. I think, he, I think he'd really, you know, really enjoy it. Cause he, he got to interview all of these, you know, great tarpon fishermen. And um, he's a New York Times bestselling author. He wrote uh, Saban. He wrote, you know, sort of the unofficial biography of Nick Saban, the coach at Alabama. And he's written a couple of other really, really stellar books. And uh, so, um, but, you know, I, I think I think there's, you know, there's a lot of people in fishing that have been in magazines and stuff, but um, 
you know, most of us just want to be down on the river. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's pretty yeah. much that's pretty much where 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 we're happiest. We're not doing this to get into magazines. We want to be, you know, on the river exchanging spade casting. Exactly. And I want to get on the river with you and exchange spade casting instruction. But uh, <laughs> tell me about uh, tell me a little bit about the long rod resurgence, long line stuff. I think um, a lot of it in steelhead fishing has come out of the uh, the Clearwater, uh, the Clear Clearwater River in Idaho, and um, and when it was open, I think the uh, the Thompson River in British Columbia, and there these are summer steelheads, so they're surface oriented. Uh, the fish that are going to the Clearwater are coming up the Columbia, coming up the Snake, and then when they get to Lewiston, Idaho, they bang a left and head up the Clearwater. And so there's summer steelhead. I think, you know, prime time there is probably November, late October, November, somewhere. And, you know, they probably come 450 miles to get there, these steelhead. Just an absolutely remarkable feat of migration. And, uh, and then the river is really wide and fairly shallow. So if you can chuck a long line, then uh, you're going to cover more water. And, um, and they generally fish a dry line and a wet fly, not too big, probably size six. And so longer rods and longer lines, the big advantage of a longer line is, so a short head would be, we, you know, call it 35 feet. A longer line and this can be either a shooting head or it can be integrated with the running line, is usually 60 feet and longer. So 65 would be kind of the, the sweet spot. So from the end of the fly line where the leader is attached to the rear taper would be something like 65 feet. And uh, then you can either chop it and put monofilament on the back if you really want to get it out there. But a lot of folks just prefer an an integrated line because then they don't have to worry about that loop to loop connection coming through the guides. And uh, so the big advantage is if, if you're making a, let's say a consistent hundred foot cast throughout the day and your head is 65 feet long, then you don't have to strip in as much fly line in order to make the next cast out to a hundred feet. And so that style of fishing is, is very relaxing and it's, um, it's elegant. It's slightly more difficult. So for those of us that are always looking to improve our skills, it's a challenge. And so I think, you know, the, the long line resurgence is really a steelhead thing in North America more than anything else. And, um, and it's come out of a, a few very specific fisheries on the West Coast, if you count Idaho in, that, in the Pacific Northwest. And, uh, and guys like uh, Tim Arsenault, who's a, he's the manager at Michael & Young um, in Vancouver, fly shop. And, um, and he's a, a competitor at Spayarama, and he's got a... Um, a small fly line company called bridge outfitting and uh they make long lines as well as um sort of intermediate 45 foot shooting heads 
and uh, and he's doing quite well with that, you know. And and a lot of people are saying, well, you know, I got my Skagit head. You know, what's next? Right. Is that what it is? It seems like that's what it is to me from the outside. You know, again, I'm not a super spay on everything, but it seems like it's like, yeah, you know, you started out with spay, right? And then it got down to the the OPST, right? Smaller, smaller, smaller. And that's still going. That's still great. People are still loving that trout spay. But it seems like people also, right? Well, we're going the other way now. Now we're like, okay, I got the 13 foot, the 12 foot. That's all good. But you know what? That 15 foot sounds kind of fun. Like I know it's old school. It sounds kind of hard, but it's like a challenge. It seems, is that what it is too? Kind of like a challenge. Like I've already done that other stuff. I need something new. Definitely. Absolutely. hundred percent. And, um, you know, the ideal setup for that is, um, probably about a 15 foot eight weight, something like that. Um, Berkheimer makes a 15 foot two inch eight weight. And, um, I think Gale Forest, which is a Scottish company, they're coming out with a 15 foot eight weight, uh, sometime this year. And, uh, and these are rods that are built specifically for long line casting. And, uh, even if you don't fish, man, they are a hoot to cast. And, and there's nothing that will make your casting better than working on your long line technique. And once you go back to Scandi or Skagit, you will find that your, your technique is crisper. And because you've been working on something that was, that is more difficult now that you go to something that's actually easier, um, that you will find that you're a better Skagit caster and a better Scandi caster by working on the long line stuff. And, uh, so it all just, it's just all kind of a really nice feedback loop. And you, you also, uh, you know, you're really exploring the discipline and, um, you just never, you never max it out and you, you never know it all. Yeah. You can never master it. Never. Even Travis Johnson, maybe he's the exception. Is he, is he <laughs> like the, you know, he's kind of like the Michael Jordan, right? He's like the Michael Jordan of it, but even him, like he still can get better. Definitely. And he will tell you that all day long. And, um, Travis, I've, I've taken, uh, he's kind of my casting coach. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. And Travis is, uh, he coaches a lot of the really top casters. I think he, uh, he coaches Whitney Gould, who's, I, th- I think you can make a strong case that Whitney Gould is the best all around fly caster in North America between single handed and two handed. And, uh, she's a guide on the Missouri river, um, in Montana. And, um, I think she's won Spayorama like eight times. And she's also on the U S national casting team that competes at the world championships and, uh, in both single handed and, and two handed. Um, but she, you know, she likes to spend time with Travis to get Travis's input on her casting. And, uh, but all those guys, you know, all those folks are in a state of continuous improvement. You know, you would say Whitney Gould, you know, Travis Johnson, they've all won Spare Rama. They've all won medals in the world championship. Uh, well, they're where they need to be. And they're like, nope, I need, you know, there's, there's stuff I can improve. So, you know, you mentioned Michael Jordan. I think he would have said the same thing. You know, how do I get better from last year? And, you know, it's interesting casting with Travis because Travis is a big golfer as well. And so he says, 
he says, you know, the golfers, like for teaching golf, they're so far ahead of where we are with fly fishing. And, you know, they've got all these apps and like the mechanics of their stuff. Yep. And, you know, slow motion cameras and, uh, you know, overlays between, you know, where you were two years ago with where you are today, split screens, on and on it goes. And so he explores a lot of that type of technology and thinking and applies it to spay casting. And, and that is, um, that's sort of next level. That's where we're headed. If you want to go there, you don't, you don't have to go there to get your fly out there and catch a fish. Uh, but if you're interested in there, uh, interested in that kind of stuff, it's out there for you. And, um, and you know, keeps me off the end of a bar stool, you know, uh, drinking too much beer, I guess is, is about what you could say for that, but I really enjoy it. And, uh, <laughs> that's awesome. It's, um, what I think about, you know, in the middle of a January snowstorm when I'm shoveling snow and, uh, it's, it's great stuff. That's awesome. So a couple, uh, just quick ones and we'll take it out of here. So, uh, one, um, and I, I kind of call this the rapid fire round sometimes, but the, the click and Paul versus just the regular steelhead salmon reel. What, what are you going for? Uh, I don't like click and Paul because I feel I can land a fish faster on a disc drag. And in today's world with catch and release being, uh, important, if you can land your fish faster then I think they're going to be in better shape when you release them. And there are some really good anglers on Click and Paul. And, uh, you know, they can, you know, land them just as quick on a Click and Paul as they can on another reel, but they've got a lot of experience at it. And uh, so I would say for the, um, the new angler or the angler who's only fishing one week a year go with a disc drag reel because you'll probably be able to land your your salmon or a steelhead more quickly and the fish will be in better shape when you release it yeah good 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 that's awesome and leave it off here we always love you know to talk conservation we're not going to dig into that at, at all in a deep level but is there a group you know i guess atlantic salmon is we've been talking about that today but is there some group we can look into more maybe support that's out there that you know of Definitely. Uh, the best organization and the biggest organization in North America is the Atlantic Salmon Federation. And um, I serve uh, on their national council, uh, which is uh, like being on their uh, junior board, if you will. And they're based out of New Brunswick, Canada. And uh, their website address is www.asf dot ca for canada and they do a lot of good work all over their biggest their biggest uh their biggest initiative right now is is looking at the remaining commercial fisheries out on the high seas um not so much on the high seas but in the uh on the um on the coast primarily of greenland where there is still some interceptory fishing going on um for uh, wild salmon. Uh, in uh, Iceland, the North Atlantic Salmon Fund, uh, which is nasf.is for Iceland, is um, 
a really effective conservation group. What they do is um, they pretty much go to commercial fishermen, buy out their salmon licenses, and then um, uh, buy even go to the point where they'll buy them gear to fish for other species so that they're not focused on wild salmon. And uh, so they do a lot of tremendous, really, you know, really good work. And in the uh, in the UK, the Atlantic Salmon Trust is also a very active uh, conservation organization. So those three, I would say, pretty much cover it from west to east. That's perfect. We will put uh, links to the show notes to all those and some of the episodes that uh, we mentioned a few guests that have been on, including Berkheimer. So we'll put some links out to those. And then, uh, yeah, we'll send everybody out. We'll just send them out to Brown uh, Topher on Instagram. I think that's the best place where they can head over to wildriverspress.com and check in with you, Topher. So, uh, hey, I appreciate all the time today. This has been an amazing episode. I think we're, if you're up for it, maybe down the line, we'll, we'll have to get you back on and, and follow up on some more questions I have. Oh, it'd be my honor. Thanks so much, Dave. There it is, wetflyswing.com slash 464. You can head over there right now, episode 464, and uh, follow up on some of the stuff we talked about today, get some of those links, and just uh, keep the conversation going strong. Reminder, if you can check in with any of our sponsors uh, this week and uh, and get a chance to see what they have going on, on their website, that would be amazing. I want to thank you in advance for any past or future purchases you make uh, through our sponsors. All right, we're going to bust out of here quick because we got a lot to catch up on. Uh, we have a, uh, a amazing summer coming up here. We're going to be doing a lot of work behind the scenes, so I'm excited to hopefully see you. Uh, hopefully, see you on the water. If you haven't connected with one of our trips, or if you're interested in finding out more about clinics and things that are coming up, you can check in with me anytime. Dave at wetflyswing.com. And uh, yeah, and if I can't catch you there, definitely catch with me online. Let me know you're listening. I would love to hear from you if you are new. As always, for sure, send me an email or social media. All right, I'm out of here. Hope you're having a good morning. Hope you're having a good afternoon or a good evening, wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by today and listening to the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.